This is Guns and Butter. First of all, the government never looked at DNA evidence for the alleged hijackers. Even some of the hijackers' families offered DNA evidence. The government refused to even accept it. So there was no DNA even attempted for the alleged hijackers. Okay, um, and yet, for example, in in two of the planes, this plane's not in the World Trade Center. I mean, they identified basically everybody else on the plane. So why couldn't they try to identify the, the alleged hijackers? That's that's pretty amazing. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Paul Zaremka. Today's show: the hidden history of 9/11. Paul Zaremka is professor of economics at the State University of New York at Buffalo. He is author of Toward a Theory of Economic Development and editor of Frontiers in Econometrics. Paul Zaremka is also co-editor of Essays in Modern Capital Theory. Editor since 1977 of Research in Political Economy, this series of 24 annual volumes addresses economic and political issues from the perspective of the social classes involved. The Hidden History of 9/11, 2001, first appeared in 2006 as part of the Research in Political Economy series. Newly republished in paperback with updates from the authors, the Hidden History of 9/11 is a compendium of articles by different researchers into various aspects of the September 11th attacks, including sections on the hijackers, who were they, the morning of 9/11, and the context of 9/11 and meaning for the future. Today we discuss several of the chapters in depth. Paul Zaremka, welcome. Thank you. The book you have edited and written a chapter for, the hidden history of nine eleven, first was published in hardcover in two thousand and six, I believe, but was quite expensive and unavailable to most people. But last year, your book has now been published in soft cover. The hidden history of nine eleven is comprised of、uh, different chapters. On different subjects relating to 9/11 by different authors, and、right. you yourself have authored one of the chapters. That's right. That's yeah. Right. And and only、um, it's important to know that、uh, only half of the book is about 9/11 itself, and half of the book is basically about background, one way or another, about 9/11 type issues. Right. And I want to get into those in some depth.、Mm. Hopefully, we can、uh, cover a lot of that today. Okay. Why don't we start with your chapter? Which is called "Initiation of the 9/11 Operation with Evidence of Insider Trading Beforehand." You write about three topics: the planes and hijackings, the targets, and insider trading. With regard to the planes and hijackings, what did your research reveal? Basically, I mean, this, this may be a little bit surprising, but basically, I came to the conclusion that planes took off as described by the 9/11 Commission report or anybody else. I mean, it, they did take off. There was not an issue of no planes that some people talk about.、Um, the planes did take off, and I, I I don't have any evidence that they didn't take the paths that we know about.、Um, I did sustain the fact that there was interference in the cockpits. Of some sort, but I always refer to the alleged hijackers. I mean, somebody interfering with the planes would be called a hijacker,、um, but the individuals, the identity of the individuals, makes them for me alleged. I have no idea who they were. 
Well, regarding hitting the targets, which is the second section, is on the targets, you examine three different scenarios. Actual suicide pilots aiming the planes into the targets, or secondly, uh, homing devices that home the planes into the targets, like commercial pilots following homing beacons or where the planes are automatically controlled by computerized guidance systems and and crews are rendered helpless to change the result. And thirdly, the possibility of substituting commercial planes with pilotless drones. So these are all various scenarios that have been researched and and written about. What is your feeling about these three possible scenarios? Um, That's a good question. I, I First of all, the 9-11 Commission report didn't consider any possibility but the first one. And the fact that the planes could have been guided by some kind of homing device uh, is something that's actually familiar to all of us. We just don't know it. I mean, when most commercial planes land today, they land on some kind of uh, glide path, which is determined by a beaconing device from the airport. So if you kind of just change the beaconing device, obviously you're, you're trying to cause a problem, but if you change the beaconing device to the World Trade Centers, for example, um, you can have the same result as, as landing a plane. And if the 9-11 Commission report had been at all responsible, it would have addressed that, pro- that possibility equally with the other possibility that there was live human beings who guided the plane into the targets. My problem with, and I'm not taking a 100% stand on the issue, but my problem with the idea that, that there was people in the cockpit who actually crashed the planes into the building, I mean, that requires a steel de- human determination requires uh, skilled piloting. None of the alleged pilots had the, had the skills for it. But even more than that, if I were planning such, an, uh, such a um, major terroristic event, I would not rely upon the, the human element in that. I would use some electronic devices. Now, there was a third possibility that you mentioned. That is the, uh, the drone possibility. I don't think there's enough evidence. There's some interesting things that we, it's just too far in advance for us to discuss it today. There's some suggestion that there could have been something there, but it's it's pretty murky. So I, I don't really give it too much credence. Well, in terms of the homing device, the beacon, could you talk a little bit more uh, technically how that works? Where would the beacon originate, and who would be in a in a position to change the beacon? The best evidence that I've seen about where the beacon could have been is in is in World Trade Center 7, not 1 and 2, but in World Trade Center 7. I mean, there's some authors who have provided a very clear mapping of where the planes could have come in on the same beacon path, and then when they hit the north or the south tower, actually banked into the tower in the way in which they, in fact, are photographed as having gone into the towers. In other words, not straight in, but but at an angle. Um, so the answer to your question basically is the beaming would have been in or could have been in World Trade Center seven, and who did it? Well, that's that, that's the whole <laughs> that's the whole ball game. There is another possibility, and the other possibility is it was electronically controlled completely. But uh, in, in other words, there's no beaming. You had an automatic pilot uh, uh, control the planes into the towers. I want to make a. Uh, a couple of comments about that, and that is that even if the planes, even if there had been some hijacking or some kind of intervention in the in the cockpit, if either one of those things had happened, whatever the the pilots did or the alleged hijackers did, it wouldn't make any difference at all to the outcome, and so it it, it has no impact on on who did it, on who the on who the alleged hijackers were, because they might have been set up to do it to sort of create a story. But it didn't change the outcome. The outcome was determined by something else, namely beaconing or 
automatic control of, of the planes. The fact of automatic control of planes, our beaking is, I mean, it's well known. I, I said automatic, but I kind of meld that into beaconing. It is not the same, but it's the same sort of idea that you're c- controlling the plane by electronic means. Right. And if that were the case, and it wouldn't matter what was going on inside the plane, that they would have control. Right. Exactly. Right. Do you have any opinion? Do you have any? Uh, well, obviously, I guess you haven't reached a conclusion. But what would you? Do you have any preference? I, on I, have, a, I have a bias that it was some kind of electronic control. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not asserting it. I mean, I'm just that's my bias. I mean, this is a major terrorist operation against at least four targets, and you. I just don't think you want to rely upon human beings uh, being told what they're supposed to do and actually completing the exercise. I mean, I, I just think that's – it's too important to get it done right to rely upon just a, quote, steeled set of human beings doing what they're supposed to do. Well, exactly. This was very, very complex right. uh, and sophisticated operation. And uh, furthermore, they don't have the abilities to do it. I mean, if, none, of the, none of the alleged pilots had the ability. Right. Right. And just an aside, when you were talking about uh, beaconing possibly coming out of World Trade Center 7, which collapsed uh, later in the day, I guess I did read in the book somewhere where someone was uh, talking about how if, in fact, that were the case, if a beaconing beam were coming from World Trade Center 7, then that would explain, as you mentioned, why the planes were at an angle when they hit the towers That's rather right. than straight in. Right. And it also explain why it might be useful to have that building come down. Exactly. <laughs> the devices would be in there. Although, let me just say that that wouldn't be a sufficient reason because you could also imagine whatever device was in there was you know, taken out of the building very quickly by whomever put it in there. So it's not a sufficient explanation that they had to take down Building 7 because it had evidence because they could have taken out the evidence. Right, right. Well, I've read uh, elsewhere that there were, of, of course, quite quite a lot going on in that building. Yes. On a lot yes. of fronts. <laughs> right. Yes, there was a lot. Securities and Exchange Commission, Secret Service, CIA, um, a lot of evidence about even the Enron, uh, the Enron case, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and I think also maybe Global Crossing. Remember that yeah, corporation? Yeah, right. Uh, I knew somebody. I've met somebody who actually worked for the Securities and Exchange Commission but in Washington, D.C., and said they closed case after case after case because they did not have any duplicate records of, of, of the evidence that they needed to try these cases. So, so many cases were closed after 9-11 because there was no duplication anywhere else in the world of, of the files. Oh, that's very interesting mm-hmm. because that all had to do with huge financial fraud. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then we watch what's going on today. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You did some very detailed statistical analysis of put options in the days preceding September 11th. Could you explain what a put option is and then talk about your analysis and conclusions about insider trading before September 11th, which obviously would show foreknowledge of the attacks by financial speculators and institutions. So maybe start with, just in case somebody out there doesn't know what a put option is. Well, a lot of people don't know what put options are. (laughs) But there's several ways in which you can take advantage of insider information and therefore engage in insider trading. Insider trading means I know something about a company and therefore where, where its stock might go that the general public doesn't know. If you do that, that's illegal. 
I mean, you're not supposed to be able to do that. You're not supposed to take advantage of inside information to play against a, a stock in either direction, either upward or downward direction. A put option is the right to sell a stock at a specifically negotiated contractual price over a specific period of time. If you don't do it in the period of time of the contract, then you lose your right. But if you do it within the contract period, you get an already established price. Like, for example, suppose you have a choice of different what they call strike prices. So suppose the strike price is $30 and the price goes down of the stock goes down to 18 within the time period of your contract, which might be one month and might be three years, okay? If it goes down to 18 in that time, then you can buy the stock at whatever day you're doing this and at the same time sell it through this put option, the option you have to buy the stock at 18 but sell it at 30. You make $12 minus whatever the cost of the put option was. And I've just now described almost exactly what was happening for both American Airlines and United Airlines before 9-11. Their stocks were just about $30, and a week later, they were just about $18. So then the strike price is the price that you have the, you have the ability to sell it at. That's right. So if you if you buy the put option or, or if you – I mean, I guess you call, you're calling it selling it. I don't know that you're buying anything on the front end. Uh, that's always confused me. You're buying. You're buying. Well, that's actually a little bit of an important point. You're buying the option to sell. Yes. Okay. The little bit of a confusion is that if I bought the, the option to sell, I can also sell my option to sell. <laughs> okay. That's the reason why I mentioned that is because when people start looking at the data, they look at the transactions in put options, not simply the purchases of put options and the transactions could include some selling of the right to to sell. It's a little bit confusing, but if you want to have clean data, you need to clean that up. Well, yes, and that uh, reminds me of the analysis that you've done. It's very uh, complex in your chapter. I can see that you did a lot of work on that, a lot of mathematical work. Right. Right. And then you did an analysis of everybody else's analysis of the put options. Right. And what kind of conclusions did you come to? Well, I, I, yeah, I'm glad you asked me that question because, there, frankly, I think there's exaggeration out there. But there's still evidence. Uh, there's still evidence of insider trading, and yet there's exaggeration. The exaggeration, I think, is along the following lines. People who are watching the financial transactions right after 9-11. And, I mean, normal business financial publications were getting the data and seeing what they thought was really large levels of insider trading, often through put options, but there are other ways, which I discuss in the chapter. But mainly we'll discuss put options, not only on American and United Airlines, but other airlines also, and also like insurance companies, which were based in the World Trade Center. And some people were saying even the most exaggerated claim was that there could have been $15 billion of money earned on the put options or, and other financial transactions. Now, that would be a huge level of insider trading. And some people said that it was the greatest level of insider trading they'd ever seen in the world before. Okay, I mean, there was really very strong statements being made. Now, this is my feeling about why they why they was why I don't see the evidence for that level okay but I think what was going on is that people 
who were writing this thought immediately that Osama bin Laden did the whole operation, just follow this money, the insider trading money, you'll get to Osama bin Laden and you'll prove that Osama bin Laden was the agent that engaged in, in 9-11. About exactly more or less one month after 9-11, all that discussion just stopped. Okay. My sense is that somebody told them or got the word out that it's not going to lead to Osama bin Laden. Okay. I'm speaking with author and professor of economics, Paul Zaremka. Today's show, The Hidden History of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, so what did you find about what what did you find out about the put option? Okay. The most important thing is that there's a, a professor named Potasman who's at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, who, for reasons that I don't exactly know, was given confidential data. Remember I described this issue before about you had bought a put option, you might sell it, okay? And the data that's publicly available doesn't make the distinction, but he was able to get data which does make the distinction. I think the Securities and Exchange Commission actually wanted to know whether statistical analysis could identify insider trading or not and provided him data that he can't give to anybody else, okay, which would test for the possibility of insider trading ahead of time. I'm not sure exactly why they made this deal with him, but they did, okay. It's a normal research problem. What's really significant is that he published his article in the same year that the 9-11 Commission reports. And, and it's in the Journal of Business, a highly respected financial publication coming out of the University of Chicago. Nobody criticizes the quality, the, the, the standards that's provided by that publication. And I could describe, he used, perhaps many of your listeners don't know any, even what regression analysis is. But um, for those that do, he used, he used a simple form of regression analysis, but then also a more complicated form of regression analysis. And to come to the conclusion, he found almost a 99% probability that for American Airlines stock, it was not a random event. In other words, there was insider trading going on. For United Airlines, I think it was like 86% probability. It's not 100% certain, okay? But if you put those two together and then you look at other stocks, the whole picture suggests that the probability of insider trading is overwhelmingly likely. I mean like 99.9% probability. Statistical analysis is never 100% of anything. There could be a reason why something happens that it's completely an outlier. But that's that's what probability is. What's the probability of that occurring? It's very, very unlikely. So the bottom line is that uh, it's highly probable that insider trading took place. But it's at least by the calculations I did, maybe we're talking $100 million dollars. I mean, it's still money, okay? We're talking maybe $100 million, and we're not talking $15 billion. I even have a a friend that uh, was working at the Pacific Exchange here in San Francisco, uh, and I met him years after 9-11, and he said in the days before 9-11 at the Pacific Exchange here, they were talking about these huge puts. Oh, yeah? Oh, that's interesting. It, it yeah, is interesting, yeah. isn't it? Those particular airline stocks are. Oh, I, I yeah. believe so. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. yes. That yeah. he that that was uh, people were talking about that because right. it was unusual. Yeah. Uh, so you know, every now and then you you meet somebody who happened to be somewhere at some point and, and notice certain things. Right. And by the way, it should be mentioned here that um, a person at the Chicago Board of Trade who knows, I mean, 
point blank said it's easy to identify exactly who makes those trades. It's, I mean, they know the Social Security numbers and the whole information, even if it's offshore. They even know it in real time, at least if it's domestic. If it's offshore, they might have a little bit longer time to get to the information, but they know who did it. Yes, now, of course. So the 9-11 Commission report says that these people who were doing it could not have been al-Qaeda operatives, point blank. They said that they were not al-Qaeda operatives, okay, and therefore, presumably, therefore, they could not be doing it on an insider basis, but that's, that's a circular argument. I mean, they're supposed to be figuring out who did it, not presuming the conclusion, namely al-Qaeda. Is there anything else that we should talk about uh, in your chapter in the book that we haven't covered that you'd like to mention? Um, I'd like to throw out one of my comments that I make in the chapter, and that is about identifying um, who was on the planes. Um, first of all, the government never looked at DNA evidence for the alleged hijackers. Even some of the hijackers' families offered DNA evidence. The government refused to even accept it. And yet they do claim DNA evidence for many of the passengers on the plane are people on the ground. In other words, in the World Trade Center situation, the person who works the forensics of it, it's a a civilian, um, actually a professor, I think, from New York University, who's also the civilian person in charge of it in New York City. Um, They identified, not everybody, they maybe identified 60% of the remains, but there was no even attempt to check out the names of these alleged hijackers. And the same is true for all the other two planes. So there was no DNA even attempted for the alleged hijackers, okay? Um, And yet, for example, in in two of the planes, the planes not in the World Trade Center, I mean, they identified basically everybody else on the plane. So why couldn't they try to identify the the alleged hijackers? That's, That's pretty amazing, okay? The other thing I want to mention is just so people know, that the government never released the American Airlines, United Airlines manifest of who was on the plane. So you don't have a direct statement from the airlines of the names of those individuals who you would even know the seats. Uh, you know, you don't see the names of those individuals. And that leads me to something I just have to talk about. And that is I always say alleged hijackers because there was news coverage from, for example, L.A. Times, The Independent in England, BBC, a Saudi newspaper that 11 of the alleged hijackers said that they are alive after 9-11. And it's not a simple question of a transliteration of a name. You described a name, you provided their picture, you provided maybe where they worked or where they went to school or where they were living. The government gave pretty much information about these individuals. These individuals raised their hand and say, why are you putting me in front as a terrorist and, and a hijacker? And they're alive after 9-11, so it makes no sense, okay? At a minimum, the 9-11 Commission report was a serious investigation would seriously investigated all 11 of those cases that were mentioned and find out if it was true or not. But they didn't do anything at all. The 9-11 Commission report just assumes the names of the hijackers, which, by the way, the list did change. The list of the first day, they found out one of the people on their list was already dead a year earlier. They changed that name and three other names, and then they had a list, like in day two or day three. That list stayed fixed, never interrogated in any publicly available way. I mean, whatever they did inside the agency, the FBI, I don't know, but the 9-11 Commission report didn't even ask any questions. They just said, you know, we're now talking about Atta. Atta did it, okay, and then, then how did he do it, not whether 
his passport had been stolen at some occasion and, and he wasn't even on the plane. I mean, none, none of that kind of stuff. And then that leads to the issue about, well, what evidence do you have that the people on the plane? Take Atta. Atta was in Portland, Maine, supposedly flying from Portland, Maine to Boston to catch this, this flight. He drove from Boston to go to Portland and then wants to fly back to make sure he catches the Boston flight to Los Angeles. Okay, Why would you do that? I mean, it's silly to do that. Okay, But you do have video evidence that's pretty convincing that he was in Portland, Maine airport because you have his picture, you have the time stamp of the, of the video, and you know the, what you're supposed to have on the video. But the problem is it's simply his flight from Maine to Boston. It doesn't tell you he even got on the Boston plane. So, And there's, the, there is no airport video being provided which links any of the names to the individuals. I mean, they might do that. Another case in Dulles, they give the a video of, I think, two of the alleged hijackers. They have videos of them coming into security, but without a date, without any description at all on the security camera. So it could have been done, it could have even been done at a different airport. And the shadow, and they have a picture of the shadowing of the cars, supposedly at that airport, supposedly on that day, but the shadowing doesn't correspond to like half hour after sunrise. So it, it's not credible at all. Um, now, I, that leads to the first chapter of the book. And uh, part one is hijackers, who were they? That consists of one article, What We Now Know About the Alleged 9-11 Hijackers by Jay Kolar, a film scholar who brings his expertise to bear on the photo and video evidence presented by the U.S. government to substantiate its account. He finds numerous serious problems with the video evidence for the hijackers purportedly taken at airport boarding gates by security cameras, concluding that, quote, no evidence exists that any of the hijackers ever boarded the planes that crashed on 9-11, what you've begun to describe. Right. Let me comment. His chapter is probably the most difficult chapter in the book. And unfortunately, it has to start the book. I mean, I took a long time figuring out w- which order of the chapters. But I started with the hijackers because that's basically a, the start of the public consciousness about it, is these people were the people who did it. The first question that comes to the public mind about who did it. I mean, it is a difficult chapter because he's describing evidence, for example, for doubles. In other words, somebody portraying to be somebody else but not being that person and how that can be used to set up a person for being on the plane when they, in fact, were not on the plane. And he concludes that the confessional video of Osama bin Laden taking responsibility for the attacks is a forgery. Yes, he does. Right. He's an expert, as you said. He's a film expert. I mean, he, he doesn't look at the films the way people like myself do. Okay, well, he immediately sort of interrogates what he's looking at. Now, you also mentioned doubles, and in this uh, chapter, what we now know about the alleged 9-11 hijackers by Jay Kolar, contradictions in the official account of their activities prior to the attacks show that doubles were used to build up false legends for them. And I think specifically uh, Ziad Jara is the striking example, and then there are a lot of photographs of the first page of your book. That's right. That's the, the advantage of the soft cover, which comes out of Seven Stories Press in New York City, because we were able to put in these pictures of this one alleged hijacker, Jara, who was a alleged pilot of the plane who crashed in Pennsylvania. 
Mm-hmm. Now, from the pictures of Ziad Jara, all the different identification pictures, you can see that they're different people. That's right. And, and the key is that all but one of those are actually government-issued photos of him. I mean, it's not, it's not just random photos of somebody. It's government passports or driver's licenses or something like that, and they're not the same people. There's at least, at least three people there. Another chapter in the hidden history of 9-11 is David McGregor's September 11th as Machiavellian state terror. He sees terror as, quote, a critical aspect of a theory of the state one that applies to most state formations, not just to a particular regime or to certain intelligence agencies or to the presence of factions within the state. When Machiavelli developed his politics of government, he did so looking not only at the Italian city-states of his period, but also at the Roman era as chronicled by Livy and others. In short, he was constructing a general view of how states operate. Terror is not simply a tactic in political struggles, but an irreversible aspect of government. And that means all governments, right? We're not being particular here. That's right, right. That's really important. I mean, what David McGregor is trying to convey to people is that the United States government, whatever else it is, it claims to be a democracy. And so whatever it is, okay, it is not exceptional, Okay, it is a government. Okay, governments, and we know this very clearly. Governments do quote nasty things. Okay, and that can include the U.S. government. If we go a step further, people more or less know the name Machiavelli. They know that the government tries to do things sometimes, which it claims that somebody else other than itself is doing it in order to get sympathy for its position from its own people. So that would be a Machiavellian operation, okay? And a terrorist Machiavellian operation is just going at, from the point of view of doing it a terrorist act, okay? Um, so Machiavellian state terrorism is a new concept. I mean, I don't know that anybody's actually used that word together before like David McGregor does, but he's trying to alert us to the fact that Machiavelli is part of a well-established theory, if you want, of uh, how the state works, which can include the United States state and that it, like other states, may, not necessarily, may engage in terroristic activities as part of a Machiavellian operation. And that that wouldn't be specific to any one government that I guess, according to Machiavelli, this is how power operates in government. Yes, Right. So don't just think that the Soviets do it or the Russians do it or the Chinese do it. I mean, we can do it ourselves, okay? But just have it in your understanding of how the world works that it may be the case in a specific instance. So, for example, we do know that the United States, in collaboration with many Western European governments, actually did engage in alleged right-wing terrorist activities, for example, bombing in Bologna, Italy, Um, several years ago, we do know for sure that it was a Machiavellian state operation trying to blame the left when it was, in fact, done by right-wing forces connected to the government. The strategy of tension, I guess, Operation Gladio, I think they call it. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, the stay behind. I'm speaking with author and professor of economics, Paul Zaremka. Today's show, The Hidden History of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What's happening in New York City as we speak is that there's a petition which has been circulated, which is asking the citizens of New York City 
to vote on the possibility of having a new totally independent and independently financed, not a government-financed independent investigation of 9-11. I mean, that's the city in which it should happen, right, because most of the activity of 9-11 happened in New York City. So they've now gotten 50 to 60,000 signatures, which is enough to get it on the ballot of the November election if, if the city council permits it to go on the ballot. If it doesn't immediately permit it to go on the ballot, then they can have 45,000 signatures, which will still get it on the ballot, but by the citizen's mandate, nothing to do with what the city council does. In other words, they are close to the possibility of actually having on the November ballot in New York City, in which case then it becomes, I guess, a majority vote. Do the citizens want a new independent investigation of 9-11, not a government-sanctioned one, but by citizens-sanctioned investigation? I think that's a very important thing because I can have whatever opinion I want. Anybody else can have their opinion about 9-11. But I don't want to go around saying I have the whole truth about this whole thing and, and not care about whether other people begin to understand it or not. Part of the understanding is having a serious subpoena-powered investigation of 9-11 done by people who you can genuinely respect. If this ballot measure, is this for the city of New York or for the state of New York? The city. The city. Now, this ballot measure is called... NYC can. NYC can. Right. And there's a website, precisely that, www.nyccan.can. They have submitted it to the city council as of last Wednesday. It just, it is new news. I mean, this is last week it was submitted. Now, are they still going to uh, collect more signatures yes. uh, just Provide. in case uh, right. some people get eliminated, right? Or because the city council doesn't approve it and they, and they need to have the 45,000 signatures instead of the 30,000 signatures. Okay, so the, both of those. So they collect signatures through something like the last week of August. So it's still going on. I want right. people to know that. So this is very important. And even though people here in California can't vote on this, um, they need a lot of support, and it's very important to get the word out. They're asking for $25 from anybody who's listening to help this process move forward. And this would establish an independent uh, commission with subpoena power, right? And that subpoena power is really important. For example, on my issue of insider trading, I would subpoena Buzzy Krongard, who works at the third-level person in the CIA on 9-11, but had previously worked with Bankers Trust and Deutsche Bank as their chief of international operations. I can't remember which bank right now because they were taking over each other and stuff like that. But he was working as the vice president for international operations, which had a lot to do with money laundering and stuff like that. So he would be the first guy I would want to subpoena. By the way, Deutsche Bank was the bank also that did execute any of the put options before 9-11. So uh, I don't know. You know it's so we do know that. Yeah, I guess we do know that. Now, in the same chapter, David McGregor uh, discusses the establishment left. That is the establishment left here in the United States and their political position on the events of uh, September 11th, that the attacks were essentially blowback. That is an understandable response of the weak to the powerful. Uh, I wanted to, to read a quote out of that book. He says, respected left commentators have embraced a radicalized version of the White House 9-11 account of September 11th. Claiming that the attacks are payback for globalization exposes the left to charges of supporting terrorism. Even while denying stereotyped views of Islam, the left 
hardly doubts bin Laden's cartoonish parody of Muslims as angry and violent. So he sees a very big contradiction and problem with how the political left in the country is addressing the attacks of September 11th. Yes, he does, right. He is absolutely correct that there's been a lot of what we call gatekeeping on the part of the left. I mean, the left is a very broad category, but I'm going to stay broad for the moment because it is broad in this case, that there's a lot of delimitation of the discussion about 9-11 to going no further than that, like you described, a blowback, okay? On the other hand, if you go to the other side of the political perspective and go to the libertarians, the libertarians, generally speaking, have a great distaste for government. So, Frankly, they have done some of the best work, not only them, but a lot of them have done some very good work on 9-11. And I think because they have a, such a distaste for government, they don't believe anything from the, from the get-go. Now, the left, and I include myself, I don't have a distaste for government as such. In fact, I have more of a distaste for capitalists and capitalism and for huge amounts of money which then control the government than government as such, okay? And I think that's that's kind of common to people on the left. I mean, they, for example, they might want to talk about single-payer health care, which has to be run by the government, a government of some sort, okay? So I think that if you say the U.S. government could have been involved or had an insider operation against its own people on 9-11, you're putting a really deep knife into, I mean, really deep knife into the U.S. government and therefore kind of government as such. And I think that an important component of the left doesn't want to go there because they want to hold back the idea that the government has some good aspect, has good governments and bad governments, and we're in a situation of a bad government under Bush, and we want to corrected to a better government. And if you really went to 9-11 as an inside operation, then you're really putting a knife too deep into government as such. That's my opinion. The evidence is overwhelming. Right. The research really has been, and some of it's remarkable. I mean, I can't get into it today. People are really serious about it, okay? And some of the condemnations on these so-called gatekeepers, I mean, it's just absolutely unacceptable. It's not scientific in any sense of the word. I mean, I consider myself a scientist, okay? Was 9-11 inside operation or not? I mean, let's, let's look at the evidence. I don't dump on people who don't agree with me. But some of these left people dump on people like me in, in a kind of vulgar way, to tell you the truth. In military drills on 9-11, Don Jacobs, and he's also known as Four Arrows, Four Arrows. He has Native American background. Yeah, so he's Four Arrows, or Don Jacobs, examines many different war games that were scheduled or actually taking place during the attacks. He identifies the following drills in operation that day. Vigilant Guardian, Vigilant Warrior, Northern Vigilance, Northern Guardian, Tripod 2, Amalgam Virgo, Timely Alert 2, and an exercise at the National Reconnaissance Office simulating the crash of a plane into the NRO headquarters building itself. Quote, besides the general confusion, the NRO exercise also involved an emergency evacuation drill running in the morning of 9-11. As a result, many key people who are responsible for watching images from numerous satellites were not even at their stations when the first plane struck its target. 
NRO spokesman Art Hobold told United Press International, quote, It was just a coincidence. It was an emergency response exercise. It was just a strange coincidence. Well, that's not the only strange coincidence, was there, during these drills? Well, actually, there was another very strange coincidence that I don't think he mentions there, and that is that there was a Red Cross facility set up a couple miles away, something like that. And these people, for like for a month, if you were a survivor, you got very good food at any time you wanted, which in fact is a great thing, okay? But the interesting thing was it was set up before 9-11, okay? It was already, it was, it was another one of those things that, quote, uh, seems to be a coincidence. But what do you mean, set up like the night before or something? Maybe the food hadn't arrived yet. I don't know about that. But the, the preparation for what you would do in an emergency had been set up before, day before, not, I don't mean weeks before. I mean, like, like these other coincidences. Right. right. It, was, it was supposed to be an exercise which became real. Yeah. Oh, I see. So the food setup would have been part of the exercise. Would have been part, it would be an exercise. What, what would you do if there were a disaster in New York City? Okay, you set up this Red Cross facility for people. But that exercise was also set up right shortly before 9-11. Oh, I see. So that the food went live, too. Yes. There is one important thing I could say about this chapter, that the co-pilot of the plane that Wellstone went down on was an acquaintance of Musawi, of the Musawi trial, which occurred in 2005, 2006. Very strange very coincidence. Very strange. I mean, you know, we, I don't know what to do with that, but it's a very strange coincidence. Another chapter in uh, Hidden History of 9-11 is Terrorism and Statecraft Al-Qaeda and Western Covert Operations After the Cold War. Nafis Ahmed writes that the late Robin Cook, former British Foreign Secretary from 1997 to 2001 and leader of the House of Commons from 2001 to 2003, revealed one day after the London Metro bombings that the term Al-Qaeda referred to a database contained in a computer file listing the, quote, thousands of Mujahideen who were recruited and trained with help from the CIA to defeat the Russians. Nafis Ahmed goes on to say that al-Qaeda denoted a list of individuals related to a specific category of U.S. covert military intelligence operations. So the question seems to be not whether al-Qaeda exists, but what is al-Qaeda? Exactly, right. What I'm going to say now is maybe a little bit difficult to execute in your own mind. Maybe not. I don't know. If al-Qaeda is a data bank of, of names that have been of individuals who are either directly or indirectly connected to the CIA, I don't say only directly because some individuals may not even be aware of their connection. But if the, if the structure has basically been set up by Western intelligence, CIA specifically, but not necessarily only the CIA, if that's the case, then try to do the following exercise when you're hearing the news about al-Qaeda. Okay, if you hear a news item tonight about al-Qaeda, try and say Western intelligence or substitute the word CIA, okay? It gives you a totally different perspective on the world than if you don't do that. I mean, that is kind of the message he's encouraging you to, to, to work through. I will say that I'm not an expert. Really, each author is following their own expertise, Ahmed wrote one of the first two studies of 9-11, and he's been doing this for quite a while. I'm speaking with author and professor of economics, Paul Zaremka. Today's show, The Hidden History of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. 
This is Guns and Butter. He says that the CIA never envisioned that the operational scope of its terrorist database would be restricted to Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda activity thus pertained to a new doctrine of covert destabilization to be implemented in new theaters of operation strategically close to Russian and Chinese influence, namely Eastern Europe, the Balkans, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. You know, we now even hear about Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But let me let me go a step further. We may be beginning to hear about al-Qaeda in the United States. I mean, I come from Buffalo, New York, okay? The Lackawanna Six, okay, which were prosecuted and put in jail, okay? Those people were somehow connected to al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden trained by them, okay? So I'm warning people in some ways, you know, to when you hear about it, al-Qaeda operation in the United States, don't think that it may be somebody over there. It may be somebody right here. I mean, the director of it would be somebody here, not there. That's what I mean. Now, which were these six? They were arrested where? In Lackawanna, New York, which is this old ex-steel city just immediately south of Buffalo, New York, which is where I come from. And that was somewhat similar to uh, another group of guys that were arrested in Florida a couple of years ago, right? right. And another set of people who were arrested in, in Toronto, near Toronto. Yes, right. exactly. Right. By the way, I'm not even sure it went to trial. It may have been a plea bargain. I think it was a plea bargain. Uh, one other quote from his chapter, Turkish intelligence specialists agree that there is no such organization as al-Qaeda. Rather, al-Qaeda is the name of a secret service operation. The concept fighting terror is the background of the low-intensity warfare conducted in the monopolar world order. The subject of this strategy of tension is named as Mm al-Qaeda. It's kind of a difficult concept to get. but It it is difficult, and that's why it's actually quite useful to hear that quote, to realize that the fact that that may be the, the reality of what's going on. And it's going to continue to be the case, okay? I mean, President Obama, when he was in Cairo, I mean, he came down against people like me, I mean, very hard. I mean, it's also not just me. It's also the people in the the Arabic world which have a lot of suspicion about the United States government and what really happened on 9-11. I mean, he was talking to a a large group of people, and he said that what happened on 9-11, the United States was attacked by al-Qaeda, and it is a fact, point blank. Now, another chapter in Part 2, The Morning of 9-11, is by Dr. David Ray Griffin, and that chapter is called The Destruction of the World Trade Center, Why the Official Account Cannot Be True. And in the past, I did actually uh, an entire hour-long show with him on that paper that he wrote. But specifically, he brings up a lot of points pretty much about the demolitions. That's right. Okay. But it's really important because you obviously have listeners who are coming and going. So it's really important for people to know that there was not just two towers that came down on 9-11, but three towers that came down on 9-11. And you almost never see pictures of the third building, which is 47-story building, which came down at 520 in the afternoon on that Tuesday afternoon. Building 7 did collapse in a two and a half second period of time, even though it didn't have as extensive damage as buildings that were around World Trade Center 1 and 2, and no plane hit it. Well, there are other uh, really good chapters in the book that we haven't covered, but I'd uh, like to mention them. There's um, Making History, the Compromised 9-11 Commission by Brian Sachs. Right. 
which is discussing not so much what the commission did, but who was appointed to the commission, which is the diametrically opposite case of this NYC can coalition for accountability now, which wants a genuinely independent investigation. These are government operatives that were appointed. Right, and that's what Brian Sachs shows in that's this right. in this that's chapter. Right. Right. Then there is also Islamophobia and the War on Terror, the Continuing Pretext for U.S. Imperial Conquest, and that's by Diana Ralph. Right, that's right. She's at the University of Ottawa, and uh, basically her argument is, and this uh, it's kind of subtle, uh, but well, at least part of the argument is that the whole process of creating Islamophobia started back in, in the Likud government uh, in Israel, and I think she says around 1990, okay? And then it was kind of exported, or maybe you say imported, exported from there, imported to, into the United States, into the neocon structure. She's not saying by this that Israel did it, I mean, but she's saying that the, the ideological structure of Islamophobia came out of Israeli practices in an earlier period. I also want to mention, since we're going over things that we don't have time to cover, that in the soft cover edition, the, the second edition of the book, we do have updates um, for those people who wrote chapters who thought there was an update which was necessary. I was one of those, okay? And the updates are very important. Not only extremely important, but, I mean, there's a lot of new information that comes out, and we are able to, to embellish our story in a positive way. I mean, not in a negative way, to add in new evidence. For example, the Musawi trial hadn't taken place when I wrote my chapter, okay? Afterwards, it had taken place, and they provided evidence about, for example, the use of cell phones on the planes that that were in the air, okay? The comment I would make is that people like myself who were trying to investigate 9-11 in an earlier period were noticing that there was alleged use of cell phones at altitudes that were unbelievable, 30,000 feet, 20,000 feet. They were unbelievable that planes, that you could even do it. I mean, I myself made some efforts to make connections at those altitudes. I couldn't make connections at those altitudes. So how could you claim that people on Flight 93, for example, were making cell phone calls from the planes? When the Musawi trial came out, it said that the government now, the FBI provides, whether it was a cell phone or an air phone being used from all the flights, but particularly Flight 93, and they claimed that every case was a air phone except the last two, which were the ones closest to the ground, and they were cell phone. That's what they say, whether it's right or not. I mean, that's what they say, Okay. I myself, when the prior stories were about, I investigated every one of the cases of prior reports of use of cell phones. And some of them was just like one article mentioning it. And it could have been the reporter making an error. It could have been the, the, the person who received the call made an error or whatever. But there's one case where the contradiction is stark. Okay, And that's Dina Burnett is the wife of Tom Burnett. She wrote a book about her experiences on that day before the, the Musawi trial came out. Burnett is one of the people who who made supposedly, I mean, calls from Flight United in 93. She says it in her book, point blank. It was a cell phone because I looked on my, on my own phone and saw the number that was Tom's cell phone number, okay? So it could not have been an air phone. She said she got four calls. She gave the time and when the calls came. She, she suggested that all four were um, from the same phone, from Tom's Cell phone, okay? The government says it was air phone in the Masai trial. There's a direct 
contradiction between what somebody says in writing and what the government says in the trial. Direct contradiction. But the, the fact is that Tom Burnett was at too high an elevation at that point to be able to use a cell phone. And in this regard, we're talking about Flight 93 that either crashed or was shot down in Pennsylvania, right. and it's oftentimes referred to as the cell phone flight. Right, and, and and that's where the most movies have been made of, and two or three movies have been made of that flight. That's right, right. that's the, right. The so-called heroes and all that kind of stuff. I also wanted to mention that you have an update from Kevin Ryan, formerly of Underwriters Laboratories. And actually, uh, Kevin Ryan didn't have a chapter in the original book, but he does give an update. Uh, what's that about? Well, basically, there's a online publication called Counterpunch, which has been very much against, at least the editors, have been very much against people who are looking for the truth about 9-11. And one of the people that they published in that had a I think a three-part article, three, and it was over three issues, criticizing basically some of the 9-11 people. And Kevin Ryan is answering him, okay? What I think is really important is that many times people like myself who are involved in trying to understand what really happened on 9-11 are quite happy to talk to anyone who wants to have a genuine, reasonable dialogue for both sides of the issue, and we'll try to get to the truth, okay? But you find over and over again that the people who are supporting the government's story, I mean, basically just say, I support the government's story, but don't want to go and dialogue with us about the evidence. And this guy is a case like that. Kevin Ryan will give his statement, but the author he's criticizing won't respond to Kevin Ryan. So it's sort of like they're just trying to ignore people like myself and Kevin Ryan. Well, so that's interesting. That sounds like an important update. So then that Kevin Ryan is, is is then attempting and probably succeeding in debunking this writer for Counterpunch. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, the other two things that you have in the book, uh, you end the book with something written by Bertrand Russell. I'd like you to, to talk about that. And then it's Counterpoint at the beginning of your book by Dr. David Ray Griffin. Yeah, it's a kind of a coincidence. Um, Actually, David McGregor pointed me to Bertram Russell's 16 points criticizing the Warren Commission on the Kennedy assassination. And I had never read it before. And it was brilliant. I mean, it it came out actually a couple of weeks before the Warren Commission actually was officially released. It was a brilliant statement on the part of Bertram Russell about the weaknesses of the Warren Commission. So happened that David Ray Griffin wrote, and he didn't even, I know that he didn't know about the Russell's thing. He wrote 16 objections to the the 9-11 Commission report. So the beginning of the book opens with with these questions about the 9-11 Commission report, and it has an appendix at the end about the, the Bertram Russell, but showing you how history is repeating itself in a certain sense. I really think that perhaps the Kennedy assassination was an opening salvo in, in a whole process of degeneration of the American state. By the way, when I say a degeneration of the American state, uh, starting with the Kennedy assassination, I don't want to glorify anything that happened before that. I didn't mean it that way. I just meant that we reached a new level of, if you want to put it that way, a way in which we take care of the powers that be in the United States by opening a road to assassination and terrorism. Well, Paul Zaremka, it's been wonderful to have you on. Is there anything else you'd like uh, people to know about uh, the hidden history of 9-11? If you don't mind, I would just make one other comment, and that is it's difficult to get too involved in 9-11 because there's lots of stuff out there. I'm proud of my book. I mean, the book I edited, and we all worked together. It was not an individualistic project. 
I think this is one book you could read about 9-11 and, and move into activism from there, okay? We now need to move toward things like what's happening in New York City or something like that to, into activism, and I think this book gives you the basis to do that. Well, Paul Zaremka, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me, Bonnie. There's something happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Paul Zaremka. Today's show has been The Hidden History of 9-11. Paul Zaremka is professor of economics at the State University of New York at Buffalo. He is the author of Toward a Theory of Economic Development and editor of Frontiers in Econometrics. Paul Zaremka has been a senior researcher at the International Labor Organization, Geneva, Switzerland, and a Fulbright-Hayes lecturer in Poznan, Poland. Currently working within the Marxist tradition on a book on the accumulation of capital, he has been a union president on his campus. The Hidden History of 9-11 published by Seven Stories Press, is available from the publisher and from Amazon.com. Paul Zaremka can be reached by email at zaremka at buffalo.edu. That's Z-A-R-E-M-B-K-A at buffalo.edu. The website is http colon forward slash forward slash buffalo.edu forward slash tilde zaremka. That's buffalo.edu forward slash tilde, which is the horizontal wavy line, Zaremka, Z-A-R-E-M-B-K-A. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?